So we're going to dive into this series this week, and we're going to be looking at uh, Matthew 23, and I'm going to read through that, and, um, and then we'll kind of, we'll, we'll talk about what that, what that means for us in that. So uh, Matthew 23, just verses 1 through 12, um, and it says this, then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees are the official interpreters of the law of Moses. So practice and obey whatever they tell you. And that's a good place to stop right there. We can end the day right there. They are teachers of the law. Do what they tell you. Do what they teach you. And then Jesus was like, okay, you're in good hands. But I'm going to tell you that the issue in this passage is not those verses. Because here he comes. He says, but don't follow their example for they don't practice what they teach. This is getting a little bit uncomfortable. They crush people with unbearable religious demands and never lift a finger to ease the burden. Everything they do is for show. On their arms, they wear extra wide prayer boxes with scripture verses inside, and they wear robes with extra long tassels. And they love to sit at the head table at banquets and in the seats of honor in the synagogues. And they love to receive respectful greetings as they walk into the marketplaces and to be called rabbi. Don't let anyone call you rabbi, for you only have one teacher and all of you are equal as brothers and sisters. And don't address anyone here on earth as father, for only God in heaven is your father. And you know what? Also, while I'm on the subject, don't let anyone call you teacher, for you only have one teacher, the Messiah. The greatest among you must be a servant. But those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Um. Jesus is talking about hypocrites here. And since there are no hypocrites here, we'll just end here for the day. You just collect your belongings, and we will see everyone next week. All right? That's it. We're done. Um, the reason Jesus talks about hypocrites is because everyone outside of the church talks about hypocrites. What is the biggest complaint that you hear from non-Christians about the church today? Oh, they're all a bunch of hypocrites. Yeah, we are. We are because they were also. Because the religious leaders of the day were hypocrites as well. Because it's very difficult when you have humans involved in the kingdom work of building not to get personally invested and to say for just a second maybe this is not about Christ anymore maybe this is about what I want for God's kingdom now hypocrisy comes in two different flavors all right one speaks uh, the first one speaks one thing and does another so that's where someone is saying something but doing another thing and uh, having a child will really test you on this uh, because I'll say, uh, darn it, dang it, all the time. And Sadie will look up to me and say, Daddy, don't say dang it. Oh, you're right. I told you not to say it, so I should probably also not say it. Hmm. So that makes me a hypocrite, and even though she doesn't know that word. But that's the, uh, what it makes me in her eyes. When we speak 
one thing but do another. That is hypocrisy. That is the moment where we are convicted because we said that we want you to do this and yet I went and did the opposite of those things. And we say, well, you know, just do what I say, don't do what I do. Jesus is speaking to that moment. Jesus is calling us out on the carpet and saying, okay, I've entrusted the kingdom to you. So we need to start doing the things that we're saying. Now, the second form of hypocrisy is a little bit more subtle. It's not one that we notice all the time. But the second type of hypocrite behaves righteously, but for the wrong reason. Now, Jesus calls out the religious leaders of the day for both of these things. Um, Verse 5, he says, everything they do is for show. On their arms, they wear extra wide prayer boxes with the scripture verses inside. You might have a version of the Bible, the translation that says they're phylacteries. It's their little prayer boxes. You might see it in Orthodox Judaism. They wear on their head a little box with um, usually the quote from Deuteronomy 6, 6 through 9. Um, And they wear that. And it was meant to be a symbol that, you know, you're practicing, you're, you're preaching and, and doing the things that you believe in. Now, some of the religious leaders of the day, um, like a, a fancy car, they would want a bigger and better one because that would showcase to people that they were even more religious than you. Or their prayer tassels on their, on their cloaks on the outside, they would be extra long oh, because I'm just so holy and so pious that I have extra long prayers to say today. Oh, you only read the Bible for 10 minutes when you wake up? I do it 45 minutes. Oh, what kind of prayer was that for dinner? I pray at least 15 minutes before bed. I hear this one all the time. I fall asleep when I pray at night. Does that mean I'm somehow less holy than someone else? No. It means you're at peace means God has entered into your life and given you some peace of mind, some understanding as to his ways where you can now just sleep. These measurements that we have, the long tassels, the extra large prayer boxes, they're not things that we care about nowadays. But look at the ways in which we measure ourselves, our holiness And I think sometimes that's why people, you know, don't have outward expressions of of worship. They won't raise their hands because people might think them trying to be holier than them. I, I might not, I might be perceived as, you know, being too showy. Jesus says, don't make a show of your prayers. <laughs> you think that's what he's talking about though, right? He's talking about, he's talking about this. Everything they do is for show because their heart is in the wrong place. They want to pray these long ornate prayers and show you that they are a gift from God, that God has blessed them so much. Look how holy I am. I can pray with the words of the angels. And Jesus also says, don't follow their example for they do not practice what they teach. So they do two things. They don't practice what they teach and everything they do is for show. And this is what makes them hypocrites. Now, let me pause here just for a second. Because as I was unpacking this text, as I was reading through some of the commentaries on it, 
The problem with some of this stuff is anti-Semitism. When you read verses like this throughout the history of the church, and there have been some church fathers who have used these verses as their um, anti-Semitism claim, that Jesus was calling out all of the Jews at the time and saying that you were hypocrites, that Jesus was looking at the Jewish community and saying, woe to you, woe to you. That's not, what happen that's not what's happening here. This is not anti-Semitic language. In fact, Jesus was a Jew. We cannot forget that moment. Jesus is calling out his own people and saying, you can do better than this. In fact, it's believed that the religious group at the time that Jesus most closely was recognized with would have been the Pharisees. He believed in the law. He believed that the law was good for people, but you're just misusing it. And so to call out his own people, that's accountability, that's leadership, that's servant heart, that's saying, humble yourselves in front of God because these are not your laws, they are God's. Don't make yourself better, don't hide behind them because you think that you're more righteous than them. To understand the hypocrite, we must understand the insatiable need for human approval. We want to be liked. We want to be popular. We want to have an opinion that people listen to and trust. We want those things. But hypocrites trade God's quiet approval for more obvious praise of people. And you know what? Busted. That splits me wide open. When I was a worship leader um, back at my last ministry, we changed the language of leading worship. Because what did it used to be when you were up leading worship? It used to be, oh man, did you see how great that guitar solo was? Did you hear how great that drum solo was? We really hit that part in the bridge. We just nailed it. The, the, the cymbal drop, everything, just the breakdown. Oh man, it was so good. That used to be the language of worship leading. And so in order to improve on that, we had to get better. We had to have more guitar solos and fog and lights, and we had to have great big choirs and, and these incredible voices that were just singing and leading people. And, and they had to have like hip clothes and, and funny looking glasses. And they had to have recording albums and uh, record contracts. We changed the language of leading worship from entertainment to heart. Because we started to notice that, hey, did you see that people were engaged in worship? Did you see that people were listening to the Spirit and responding to the Spirit as we led them to that? We started to shift from, you know what? This is not about us and the band and how good we sound, but this is about how great it makes God sound. And so all of a sudden, worship started to look differently because one way is the approval of man. I loved the songs this morning. You guys play exactly the songs that I want to sing. You guys are doing such a great job, except for that one, that one guy. But you fix that. Don't worry. Then it'll be perfect. See, that's the approval, the praise of man. 
We say, that's what I want to hear. I want to hear that I'm doing a great job and my voice is so good or my preaching is so strong or, you know, whatever it might be. That's the approval of man and hypocrites trade that. They exchange that from the praise of God. And so what do I stand up here every Sunday morning and do? I want to hear from God. I want to hear God's praises in my ear, not yours. I do want to hear yours, so tell me. But I would rather hear from God, is what I'm saying. Because we've changed the way that that looks. That our worship is not based on human praise. Our sermons aren't based on human praise. We want to be first God people. It's like we lack confidence in the divine yes. And so we hypocrites have to make masks or broadcast our holiness in order to win the human yes. The divine yes hasn't been good enough for us. And so we exchange that out and we say human yeses mean more to me. The praise of my friends, my colleagues, my coworkers, the people at my school, that's what I'm after. That's where the good stuff is. Now, the problem with these authority figures is that they misuse their authority. It's not that they're in authority. It's not that they're leaders. God has entrusted people to be leaders, to take care of the word, to take care of the church, to shepherd his people, his flock. It's what he said to Peter. I give you the keys of the kingdom. Feed my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my flock. He said it three times. Do this for me. God has entrusted us through Jesus to take care of his people. So the problem is not authority, and it never has been. The problem is always abuse of authority. The problem isn't pastors. The problem is abuse of pastoral relationships. The problem isn't church authority, it's the abuse of church authority. And we've all in our past been abused by pastors and churches and been in places and situations where we're like, wait a second, this just does not feel right. This does not feel like how a shepherd should care for his sheep. They spoke in ways that were counter to the truth that they know and in the way that they teach. They speak of glorifying God, but they seem more interested in self-promotion. They speak of orienting their lives around God, but they draw everyone's eyes toward themselves. They speak of their responsibility for the people of God, yet they're unwilling to lift a finger to lighten the people's burdens. The light of self-promotion is always on in hypocrites. Never closes. People don't stop having opinions about us, and those opinions are important. And we work long, exhausting hours propping up a better-than-reality image. And we might say, oh, well, social media has turned us into those monsters. Well, I'm sorry, but that existed. That tendency, that, that proclivity toward self-improvement and self-promotion existed long before social media came. We just had a better excuse for it now. 
I'll do it in the name of Facebook. I'll do it in the name of staying in touch with the people around me. Hmm. To use Paul's words, the name of God is blasphemed along and among the Gentiles because of hypocrites. Romans 2, 24. He said, it's because of hypocrites amongst you. It's because of hypocrites in the church. It's because of believers who are saying one thing and doing another that God has been blasphemed across the kingdom. And it's so easy to confuse our interests with God's purposes, our power with God's sovereignty, and our standing with God's glory. And whether we're referring to our individual or collective lives, human beings have a strong tendency to create false and sinful hierarchies that displace God's authority. We, we have a tendency to ignore or rebel against God's kingdom in order to protect our little minor kingdoms. Pious words and orthodox convictions alone do not make a person faithful. I mean, look at the demons that Jesus came encounter with in Mark. You are the son of God. You are the son of man, the demon said. So if we could all just proclaim like the demons, right, we'd be saved. Even the demons proclaim, but they are not saved. So there must be something else behind that. The true meaning of faithfulness is found not in the words one speaks or in the doctrines one accepts, but in the orientation of one's heart. Here's a good question for us. Is your whole heart and life oriented toward God, or is it aimed at something more than God? <laughs> Let me say it this way. Is your whole heart and life oriented toward God, or is it aimed at something less than God. Because the more that you try and aim at something that you think is more than God, or I need something in addition to God, we're really aiming our heart at something that's less than God, right? Because God is our highest aim. And anytime we say, well, I need a little bit more, I need human praise and praise from God, both of those things are really good for me. We're aiming at something Less. We can't aim at something more than God or in including God. It's always going to drag us down. It's always going to be less than God. Human sin provokes alienation from God and one another, and it's primarily a matter of pride. According to Augustine, he says, Pride is a perverted imitation of God. Pride hates fellowship of equality under God and seeks to impose its own dominion on fellow men in place of God's rule. And so while Augustine describes sin primarily as pride, contemporary theologians note that this, is a, this form of sin takes place among the powerful. It's the people who have higher standing in society, the powerful people, the authority figures. Those are the ones who take the pride of sin to its furthest level. But among the weak and oppressed, sin is withdrawing from God and neighbor. Among the weak and oppressed, they assume that they have nothing to offer. And so they embrace their own supposed inferiority and use it as an excuse not to contribute. Well, I don't have any leadership skills. So what could God do with me? I can't contribute anything to the kingdom. 
because I'm just me. I don't have anything. I, I'm not, I can't speak in public. I'm not a very good reader. I know I can't sing. People around me tell me that all the time. What could God possibly use me for? And so we come to a moment where we look at ourselves and we say, do I truly believe that God can use me? Who is Moses but a murderer? Did Moses truly believe that God could use him? Every step of the way, he denied it. (laughs) Every step out of Egypt, every step across the desert, God can't use me. What did you bring me here for? I don't have any leadership skills. Why did you entrust the kingdom to me? I'm pretty sure in reading this, you've entrusted it to pastors and religious leaders and theologians and scholars and people teaching in the universities. Those are the people that you've entrusted the kingdom to, not a person like me who has no skills, who can't contribute anything to the cause of the kingdom. Everyone's more talented than me. What does God want with me? But I want to tell you that everyone has a role to play and gifts to contribute in God's kingdom. Everyone has been called. Everyone has been entrusted with the power of the kingdom. And the question now is, how do we want to use it? How do we want to lose it? How do we want to abuse it? Because we have this calling, we have this trust from Christ who has said, yes, you, yes, you, yes, you. You have been called to do this. Whether you think you have skill on a human level or not is beside the point. You have gifts that God has given you. You have gifts that affect the community, and the kingdom. You have gifts that affect the people around you. There are things that you can say to the people around you that I cannot. And so I can give a sermon. I can talk one-on-one. I can do anything that you want as a pastor. But there are just some things that I will not be able to say and speak into the lives of the people around you. The kingdom works better when we're all in this together when we just don't hand off leadership to people that look like they fit the part. The more a church engages in servant leaders who take personal responsibility for ministry, the greater its future potential. Everyone has a role to play in the kingdom of God. And so Augustine suggests that fully aligning oneself to God entails embracing a radical form of equality. And so despite our differences in intelligence or physical strength or social status or wealth or how about we put on this one, gender, all individuals are considered equal in the eyes of God. People ask me, why do you, why do you affirm female pastors at this church? Why do you affirm female leadership at this church? I mean... Let's just read through this one more time. Jesus is standing there in front of all of the people, not just his disciples who are men. He's standing in front of all of the Jewish community that has gathered to listen to him in Jerusalem, by the way, 
where he's saying these things, you have been entrusted with this. Don't let anyone call you rabbi, for you only have one teacher, and all of you are equal as brothers and sisters. So that's why we do it. Because Jesus called us to that, this radical form of equality. It's not meant for people that are rich. It's not meant for people that are smart. It's not meant for people who are physically stronger or have better status in society. The kingdom of God is meant for all of us. And we all have gifts to contribute. We all have an equal standing in the church. God is the common center to which all men are related. It is by reference to and in respect of their relation to that creative center that they are equal. All social distinctions, special offices, therefore, must be understood as functional rather than essential. The gifts and abilities of particular people must be seen as resources for the sake of the entire community. Paul says that in 1 Corinthians 12, that the hand cannot say to the eye, you're just an eye. Every part of the body is important. If you want a modern day equivalent, which part of the car is the most important? Well, let's take the brakes out. Well, brakes are important. Let's take the wheels off. Well, those are pretty important. Let's take the steering wheel off. No, that's pretty important. Let's take the wipers off. No, that's pretty important. Even these smallest pieces of the car are so important that when you remove one of them, you're going to be in trouble. You're going to have trouble navigating. You're going to have trouble driving. You're going to have trouble seeing at night. I just won't drive at night. I'll take the lights off. I'll just stay at home. That's not the way it was meant to be. Every piece functions for the good of the community. Every piece functions with the gift God has given them to community benefit. This is what Jesus is calling out here at this moment. He's not saying, go ahead and abuse everyone. Make it hard for them. Let them struggle. Show them how holy you are. He's saying everyone's in this together. Everyone is as critical as you are, O oh high and mighty. The greatest among you will be your servant. All who exalt themselves will be humbled, and all who humble themselves will be exalted. Now, we will read the greatest among you will be your servant, or must be your servant, depending on your translation. And so we say, okay, well, I want to be great, so I'm just going to be a servant to everyone. I want to humble myself so I can be great. <laughs> That's not the way it works. Jesus is speaking against those people who would say, well, I'm just going to be the most humble person here, and then I will be elevated to greatness. Jesus is not saying that. It feels like sometimes that's what he's saying. It seems like sometimes maybe I will just be more loving than you and more humble than you. And maybe I'll, be, I'll just outserve everyone. And everyone will see how great of a Christian I am. 
I'm not interested in that. I really am not. Because that's politics, that's political, that is competition. Jesus is saying the opposite of that. Those who are already great are the ones among you that you haven't noticed. Those who are already great have been practicing humility. Those who are already great have not called attention to themselves, but called attention to Christ and to God and have felt the Holy Spirit move amongst you. We get that backwards so much. I will be great as long as I humble myself. I want to be great. I want to be the best in church. So let me buy the biggest Bible that I can find. And that'll win people over. Jesus says, I will be great if I humble myself. No, 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 no. The greatest among you have already been doing that. The greatest among you have already been serving. The greatest among you have already humbled themselves. The greatest among you have pointed to God before they've pointed to themselves. And it's so important that we don't miss that. It's so important that we don't misread that idea. The good news of this is that God believes in us and engages us in holy and spiritual work of humble servanthood. The phrase functional rather than essential means that social distinctions and special roles should be seen as roles that serve a purpose in society rather than being fundamental or necessary to a person's worth or identity. (laughs) I'm not a pastor because I wanted greatness in society. That would have been weird. And pastor is also not my identity It's not what I hang my hat on at the end of the day. My identity is child of God first, and then husband, and then father, and then pastor, in that order. And when we confuse those things, when we get them mixed up, and we put our identity as human beings first before God, we can get really vicious We can get really vicious and angry that someone's trying to take that away from us. I was just trying to serve God. I was just trying to be a servant, and this is the thanks I get. These roles should be viewed as ways in which individuals contribute to the community as a whole rather than a means to elevate themselves above everyone else. For Matthew, this text could answer a question like, how do followers of Jesus understand what they are called to be in contrast to what they see around them? The world looks different. And when we start to look different than the world, I think we're getting much closer to what God has called us to do. I think we're getting much closer to what Jesus is speaking out against here in this text. When Jesus points out leaders who do not practice what they preach and who act for the wrong reasons, he contrasts them with a vision of mutual servanthood and humility. There was an opinion piece that was written in a newspaper that called on high school graduates to mop their way to success. It said, a task once considered beneath you could actually be the key to your success. Do the job nobody wants because, believe it or not, somebody appreciates it. 
Volunteer to learn and to provide value to others. Find a dream job by first doing the routine tasks in that field without complaint. Pick up a mop. And the author wasn't simply arguing that hard work leads to success, but that because it benefits other people, we should not forget its actual benefits. That no job is beneath us if it's serving other people. If it benefits the community and others in the church and in our lives, it's not a small job, it is the job. Even Pope Francis had early years running tests in a chemical laboratory, sweeping floors as a janitor, and he even worked as a bouncer for clubs. Can you imagine that, wearing that funny Pope hat as a bouncer? That commands authority right there. We value leadership in every role here at this church. And leadership looks like the Trinity. It doesn't look like just one lone wolf out there commanding, barking orders. It looks like the openness of the Trinity, the communication between people, where God has made us for faithful service and Christ entrusts us to serve others on his behalf and the Holy Spirit strengthens and equips us to be the hands and feet of God's mercy, kindness, and compassion. Jesus makes three pastoral challenges here to us. Three challenges to leaders who are entrusted with the kingdom. He first calls us to practice in daily life the thing that we announce every day. Practice what we preach. That's easy enough to do, right? No, it's not. But how can we start to think in a way where we've said something and now how do we act on it? If we're going to say it, do we really want to live it out? If we're going to call someone else to it, how do we feel if it's turned around in our lives as well? If I'm calling someone to love someone that doesn't look like them or think like them, I better be sure that I want to do the same thing. I better be sure that the love of Christ is in me and the love of Christ is in them because I see them as a child of God, as I'm a child of God. And everyone has value and worth and we treat the nobodies as somebodies here. And so if I truly believe that, when I give it to you, I better believe it in my own life as well. The second thing that we can learn is that we can't place the wrong kind of burdens on the shoulders of those who listen to our teachings, listen to the words of God, listen to our prayers for them. What are we making it about? Are we making it about the checklists? Are we making it about, I've got it all right and you've got it all wrong? Or are we saying to them, Jesus is love. He is the sign of God. How are we going to live now in light of that? And Jesus is also challenging our ego. I almost didn't include that one. Because why would I want my ego challenged? Why would I want someone coming into my life and saying, hey, you know what? You think you're a little bit bigger than you actually are. Just let me have this one thing, Jesus. Let me, let me, let me just have this one thing. 
And Jesus says, no, there's no place for you in the kingdom if you make it about yourself. When we contribute to the benefit of the community, when we, when we can all play the role with the gifts that God has given us, the church succeeds. We shift our focus from rights and entitlement to responsibility in serving others. And the gifts that God has given us are meant to bless other people in service of his community. That's what it means to be an entrusted leader. That's what it means to be called out by God to say, you know what, I'm giving you this. I'm giving you the keys to the kingdom. Peter started it, but guess what? Here we are now. That was just for those people, right? I can't lead, I'm a woman. I can't lead, I'm poor. I can't lead, I don't have anything to say. I can't lead, I can't lead, I can't lead. And the devil wants us to continue making excuses as to why you shouldn't step up in church. The devil wants us to be busy, be consumed by the status of our world to say, this is why you can't contribute. This is why the church will ultimately fail because you cannot determine why you should lead. You haven't been entrusted. The disciples were entrusted. Pastors are entrusted. Let them do all the work. And then we'll see how long the church lasts. This splits us open from head to toe. This exposes us to say, you know what? Jesus is right, as he so often is. He has looked me in the eyes and he said, I've entrusted you, and here's your role. And he's looked at you and he said, I've entrusted you, and here's your role. Everyone has a role to play. Everyone has a gift to give, and it's so important that we align ourselves with God and embrace this radical equality in the church where we start to truly believe that we all have been entrusted.